Amen. Let's give a round of applause again to Gabe. Gabe, thanks for being here, brother. Appreciate you. All right. Uh, you can open up your copy of the scriptures to Deuteronomy chapter 17. We're going to be there in just a moment. I wanted to mention a few things uh, before we get into this text, though. Uh, one of the things I wanted to highlight, even on the heels of Gabe sharing, which is uh, very timely for us as a church, is I wanted you to know, if you didn't know already, that we have a couple who are members in our church uh, who we're actually hoping next and planning, as long as the Lord shows favor, to send next school year to the very school that Gabe and his family has been at and is at this school year. Uh, Adam and Claire Pennard, who are sitting back here, uh, are hoping to help us in the process of planting a church in a small town uh, nearby here in North Manchester over the next few years. And part of the the development process for them that we'd like to to encourage them towards and help them towards is going to that pastor's college for one school year. And so I wanted to put a bug in your ear about an event we're going to do about two months from now. That's a ways out. Uh, April 23rd. We haven't done this for a couple years, but we're resurrecting it uh, it's going to be our art gal. It's a fundraiser that we either use for missionaries who are about to send out each year, or in this case, it's going to be for the development of church planters that we're hoping to keep equipping. Uh, but if you've not been to it before, basic summary, uh, we have people submit tons of pieces of art of all sorts, from handmade things to paintings to photographs to prints to things kids have made to crocheted stuff, woodworking. I mean, any sculptures, all sorts of things uh, get submitted. Then we have some silent auctions throughout this auditorium and then some live auctions uh, near the end of the evening. And 100% of the funds that are raised at night will go to help uh, this year to help the Pennards be able to go uh, to the Pastors College. So I'd encourage you to mark that on your calendar. Plan to come. There's tons of good food at it. It's a fun evening, um, but it's for a wonderful cause to help uh, advance the gospel. And so if you know artists who may want to donate uh, pieces or if you, if you would even like to volunteer this morning, I'll say that. You could sign up out at our Welcome Center later this morning. There's sign-ups to help with, we have like kids art portion of the night and we have food that needs to be donated, set up and tear down, all that sort of stuff. If you'd like to sign up to help, you can do that even starting this morning. But if you know people who'd like to submit things, they can go to that URL at the bottom there. Uh, just forward slash art gal is all you got to remember. Point them to that. It'll have directions they need for that event. But uh, it's exciting for us as a church to hopefully be coming right behind you, maybe one year behind in the process uh, to see a church plant in a small town in our region. So I uh, wanted you to know that. All right. Side note, then we'll get to the text. I promise. Uh, I wanted you to know um, your generosity to our common fund, our general fund as a church Part of that does go to support denominational works, uh, like the ones from our region, things like nationally, internationally, like Sovereign Grace Music, things like that, but also regional works. Uh, some of our funds as a church we give to the region to do church planning works, like the one that Gabe is doing. So I just wanted to encourage you and, and raise awareness that the things that the money that you contribute through these different formats does go to further works even beyond our local church, uh, but through the, the work of church plants and, and works in our region. So I wanted to uh, let you know that as an encouragement encouragement to continue to give generously, uh, not just for what God's doing here, but even for what he's doing uh, through brothers and sisters in other parts of the country. All right, Deuteronomy 17 is where we're going to start. We're going to start at verse 14 here in just a moment, uh, and we're going to go through part of chapter 18. We're going to go from 17, 14 
to 18.8 this morning. Um, but by way of introduction, if you did not know, tomorrow is a holiday. It is President's Day uh, in our country. President's Day, at least in its initial form, uh, began way back in 1885. Uh, and it was set up back then to honor our first president, George Washington. It's kind of grown and gotten more solidified since then. Uh, but tomorrow is a day in our country, the United States, where we recognize, we celebrate, we honor the presidents who we've had in office. And uh, we're going to see in today's text uh, commands about the kings of Israel and about the priests of Israel. Uh, we don't have kings in our country. We don't have formal priests in our churches. Uh, we do have in our land, we have presidents. And uh, one of the things I appreciate of, of, of how our government is set up is that our president, whoever that person is, has enumerated powers, right? There's things that we uh, entrust to them responsibility-wise. There's like a job description of sorts of what they're supposed to do. Uh, they, they don't just do whatever they want. There, there's a prescribed, this is what it is, this is what you're supposed to do. Uh, and I, I very much appreciate that. Uh, and what we're going to see in today's text is that uh, Moses is going to talk about those two offices for the nation of Israel, of king that they would eventually have, and these priests. And he's going to tell them, at least in small form, what those offices were to entail, in the, or what it should look like for the role of a king, and then uh, priests, like how they're to be provided for. And so, uh, as we celebrate presidents tomorrow, as we, it's timely, I think, that we come to a text that talks about some of the, the leaders in the nation of Israel. And though, I would say this, though we don't have kings in our country, though we don't have priests in our churches, uh, we don't skip texts like this. Like, I'm looking for, next Sunday's text is the one I'm most excited about in all of Deuteronomy. It's the best part of Deuteronomy, but we don't just skip texts like this to get to that one. We, it's, all of this is for us. And so even as we read about the kings of Israel and the priests of Israel, there's things that we can learn and should learn as God's people today. So hopefully as we read this, as I get to, to unfold it for us, I hope that the Spirit accompanies this with insight, with help uh, to understand it and to, to believe and to do what God calls us to do through this text. So if you've not been with us, Deuteronomy very briefly, Deuteronomy is uh, essentially like a transcript of the final words of Moses, like a, a farewell speech of Moses to the nation of Israel. He's 120, about to die. They're about to finally cross the Jordan, go into the promised land. And Moses is giving them this final speech or a set of speeches. Uh, so that's the content of what it is. But it also in written form, it's kind of like a covenant or a treaty of sorts between God and his people, saying, as you all go to this land that I give you, God speaking to them, this is how I'm going to deal with you. This is how you represent me. These are the things you do. These are the things that you don't do. These are how I want you to operate as the people under my authority in this land. And so we've been going through a lot of this where he's giving practical instructions about uh, feasts and festivals. And last week we saw a text about how they make judgments and respect judgments. Uh, this week we're going to see this text is about kings and about priests, what they were supposed to do, things they were supposed to be careful of, how they were supposed to be cared for. And so that's what I'm going to be reading for us is Deuteronomy 17. I'm going to start at verse 14 and go through verse 8 of the following chapter. But I encourage you to follow along in your copy of the text uh, as I read. So Moses continues speaking in Deuteronomy 17 by saying this. I can't find the right verse, sorry. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, 
I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who's not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again, or you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons, for all time. And if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all Israel where he lives, and he may come when he desires to the place that the Lord will choose and, and ministers in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portions to eat besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony. This is the word of the Lord. I want to summarize this message of this text about kings and priests this way. I would say that those who lead must be servants and those who serve must be cared for. That's how I would summarize it. That those who lead must be servants in the kingdom of God and those who serve in the kingdom of God must be cared for. And I want to walk through these two sections about kings and priests under the two headings of kingly priorities and priestly provisions. And so the first section, the first paragraph or, or two that we've read, uh, I think you could summarize as kingly priorities. What we're, and that's what I meant by the phrase that those who lead must be servants. So I want to explain what, what Moses was saying about kings and then try to help us understand what bearing that may have upon us, even who are not kings presently. So if you start back at the beginning of today's text, what Moses is imagining for them is that they've entered the land, they've entered the promised land, and he's imagining them saying, I want a king now. They've looked around at all the other nations that are around them by reputation or that they've even been under the thumb of Pharaoh. Uh, They've fought against some of these kings like Sihon and Og. They've seen how these other nations have kings. And Moses is imagining them being in the land and saying, we want a king the same way. We want a similar king. And it's very interesting, uh, verse 15, what, how Moses responds to that anticipated request. Uh, he says this, he says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. 
And so I would note for us that Moses is not telling them they have to have a king, right? He's not saying, go set up a king. Like, when you get there, you're going to need a king. But it, what the things he's about to say are more like a concession than a command. He, he's imagining them saying, we would like a king. Like, we see gain. Uh, it's not even implied that they have these horrible motives in asking for a king, but they're, they're asking for it. And Moses is basically like, that's allowable. Like, you, you can have a king. Uh, it, it's a concession. You may, not you must, right? Like, you may have a king. Uh, but then he gives some commands about if they do have a king, what that guy needs to be like. And there, there's a couple kind of prerequisites, like, to be president, you have to be 35, for example, things like that. There, there's a couple prerequisites of what uh, is, must be true of this man who would serve as king. The first one you see uh, this is kind of a general category. He says, he must be a man whom the Lord your God will choose, right? He doesn't even spell out what that's going to be like, but he wants them to know when you decide who's going to be king, look for more than just what your own intuition would lead you to. Like, look for a man to be king who has the heart of God, like who actually is going to lead and govern in a way that honors God. But then specifically, he says that it must be an Israelite, right? He says that you, can't, you may not put a foreigner among you, verse 15. It must, he must come from among your brothers. He says it a few different ways, but that this man who would be king needs to be an Israelite, not a foreigner, not somebody who has been brought in for like political alliances or things like that, but he must be one of us because we are to be a distinct nation, uh, not mixing, not blending with the patterns and practices of others, but being governed by God uh, and living as God calls us to live. And then Moses, I, I so appreciate this, in verses 16 uh, and 17, Moses anticipates some of the temptations that may come to a king. Some of the things that he may face, this temptation to acquire things to himself. That's this phrase Moses uses again and again. He says, he shall not acquire this to himself, or too much of this to himself, or too much of this to himself. And there's three things uh, that Moses says these kings need to steer clear of accumulating too much of for himself. Uh, one commentator, these are in verses 16 and 17, uh, used in good Baptist or preaching fashion, alliterated with three W's. He said that kings need to be careful of not acquiring for themselves weapons, wives, and wealth. Weapons, wives, and wealth. So he says not to acquire horses, too many horses for himself. That may seem like super strange to us. Uh, why, like horses are kind of an afterthought to most of us. But for them, horses, especially remember where they were coming from, getting chased by chariots of Pharaoh uh, 40 years prior to this, right? Like horses were the symbol of power and might and force and speed and ability to combat against other people. And the temptation of a king could be to, I'm going to acquire all these horses, which would have been these ancient weapons of the utmost caliber, to myself and find security not in the God who protects us, but in these horses, in the chariots that they can pull. And he's saying, do not acquire for yourself so much of this weaponry, this ancient weaponry that you forget to depend upon God for your protection. The second thing, if that was the first W, the second thing, you see this in 17, is wives. 
He says to not accumulate for himself or acquire for himself many wives. That may seem, again, strange to us. We live in a day and age which is good and right of monogamy as Christians and believers where we have one spouse. We're commanded toward that. Uh, There was a temptation in this ancient world for various reasons for kings who would be in power not just to have many wives for the reasons our minds might go to in an over-sexualized world today, but there was political reason that, that people would acquire wives for themselves, uh, that they would try to make broker these deals with other people groups around them to say, hey, like, we can, we can have a, a peace between us. We'll, in a sense, have our daughter marry into your family and vice versa. And there would be this, like, political maneuvering sometimes uh, with the people around them. And Moses is saying, if and when you have this king, do not let him acquire for himself many wives. Uh, don't let him start to angle politically with the nations around him because he says his heart could be led, could turn away in verse 17. That though there might be these feeling of neutral aims in acquiring these wives, their foreign religions that will come in are going to turn his heart away from the Lord, from Yahweh. And Moses saying, please do not let kings do that. And then the last thing, the third W would be wealth. He, that's the end of 17. He says to not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And so that is straightforward, I think, to us. There could be, as the head of a nation, there could be this accumulation of wealth, not for his people, not for the gain of those under his rule and under his care, but for himself. Uh, That he could have storehouses, that he could have this abundance of wealth to provide for him and to not care for his people. And he could turn the economic uh, realities on its head and just see his kingship as a means to gain for himself rather than to gain for the people. And Moses is saying, do not allow kings to do that, to acquire for themselves that, those three things of weapons, wives, and wealth. But what Moses does say in this next paragraph is what the king should have for himself, like what he should keep close to himself, right? Uh, it says that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. And, it, and then in verse 19 he says, it shall be with him right? So I I love this. I don't know how this ended up fleshing out of how they would do this, but he's saying what this king should have as a valued possession, what he should have with him all the time, what he should want more and more and more of is God's word, is the things that God has said. Like, put weapons aside, put wives aside, put wealth aside. What this man should value and want more and more abundance of is the word God and Moses wants that so badly God wants that so badly that he commands that this king should handwrite it seems like a copy of the law which would have been a long endeavor in his own handwriting to write out the law of God and to read it often he says even to 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 read in it all the days of his life not just read it once but read it as he ages and even see in his own handwriting like, oh yeah, I know this. I've, I've heard this before. I need to govern this way. I need to live this way. I know this, but the Lord is kind in reminding me of this. And so he's to keep it nearby, to read it often. And what Moses says the fruit of that will be for this king would be in verse 19, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So that's one fruit of him reading the word over and over again. He's actually going to be obedient himself. He's going to do what God has said to do, at least more likely to do it, right? It's going to be in the forefront of his mind. He's going to obey and do what God has said to do. But then verse 20, another fruit of him staying near to the word of God, getting it into his mind and heart over and over again, 
is that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. Right? And that is a temptation of anyone who is given authority, who's granted authority to rule in any domain, is that there can be a temptation for them to elevate their heart above those they're entrusted to lead. Uh, to start to see the people as a means to serve them rather than them as a person to serve the people. And Moses saying if this man would keep God's word in his heart, he'll be able to resist that temptation to elevate himself above the people. He'll see his role as one of service. And Moses knows if there's kings like that, the end of chapter 17, there will be stability. There will be longevity in the land if they have kings that rule like that. And so Moses is commending that type of king to steer clear of those things, but to keep the word of God near. And I think you see in that text that those who lead must be servants, right? The, the king of Israel, if and when they were to have a king, was to not just be one who lorded his authority over others, but who used his role as a means to serve, as a means to benefit those who were under his care. We don't have kings in our country, right? We, we don't have uh, kings in our church. But as Christians, I would say even though none of us are kings, all of us in some way are rulers, if that makes sense, right? Like humans were made to rule, to have dominion over the earth, to have, so whether you are the youngest kid in the room who maybe your little realm of rule is like your bedroom or your half of a bedroom if you were like me growing up or whatever, like all of us have some little sphere of this world where we've been entrusted with oversight or we've been entrusted with responsibility and sometimes as we get older that even includes oversight of other people and it becomes increasingly weighty when we become a husband, when we become a parent, when we become a boss, when we take on a role in government or society or in a church. Like there can be these fears that grow of leading. And what the, a text like this today should do to us, I think, is to change both our taste for what type of leaders we're drawn to and then our practice of how we lead when God entrusts us with those things, right? I think this, a text like this should shape our taste for leaders, uh, within the church especially, but even in society at large. A text like this should bend our hearts towards servant leaders, right? Not towards people who are aggressive and who are domineering and who, who draw attention to themselves, but to, to people who serve in ways that benefit the people under their care. That's the type of leader that we should be drawn to. If you look throughout the, the text of Scripture, the, the leaders, at least amongst the people of God, this is talking about kings, but when you, like in the New Testament, talk about pastors, deacons, roles like that, that have these, these leadership type of roles in the church. Do you know what typically they're we're called to look for in those people? It's not that they are wealthy. It's not that they've accumulated a lot of stuff for themselves and that they're impressive in the world's eyes, but it is that they are humble, that they are oriented to serve the people that God has put around them, that they have a demonstrated character, not just a, a capacity to, not just credentials and charisma and wealth and forcefulness in how they lead things, but that they have a humility about them. They have, they're not quarrelsome. They're gentle. They, they have a, a servant's heart, a willingness to lay down their life. That is the type of leaders we should have a taste for. And does that not make sense? We just took communion today. Does that not make sense for us as Christians specifically? That we would be drawn to that type of leader. To that type of person who possesses authority. Because that is what the supreme leader is like, Jesus Christ. Right? He, you read a text like Philippians 2 sometimes. He, he 
being God himself, eternally existent, gave up certain things in order to become a human, to enter a womb, to, to, to grow up and have annoying siblings and to have parents that were sinful towards him. And he, he lived in a way that was humble, that was demonstrating from day one this humility that's willing to subject himself, to submit himself, to lay down ultimately his life at the cross. Like he did not come into this world initially just wielding power and demanding worship and and crushing people. He came as the supreme leader first to lay his life down. To even give his life up for the gain of people who didn't deserve it. The gain of people who didn't worship him, who didn't serve him as they ought. Christ, if no other king has done it, Christ resisted the temptation to elevate his heart above his brothers, didn't he? He he suppressed that temptation as Satan brought it to him, even to the point of death, where he laid down his life upon the cross for us. And so, if we are drawn to Christ as that type of leader, should we not be drawn to that type of human leader amongst other domains of life? That we see people who are willing to lay down their lives, that are willing to orient their lives for the good of the people that they are leading, not lead people to gain for themselves. Not just to gain more of a reputation, to gain more wealth, to gain more applause, to gain more things, but to lay their lives down. So it should affect our tastes and leaders. And then as God grants us ability or opportunity to lead, a text like this should affect the way that we operate as leaders. In whatever domain we're entrusted with leadership, this, a text like this should affect how we operate Right? We should regularly, whether we have such a, a small domain as a, as a bedroom or my homework as a kid or whether we oversee some vast company or whether we serve as a leader within a congregation, we must regularly remind ourselves what a privilege it is to have that entrusted to me. That this is not just something that I've mustered up myself or that I deserve for this to be granted to me or these people to to respect me or to do these types of things. But we must remind ourselves over and over again what a privilege it is to lead. What an honor it is to be entrusted by other people with oversight of them. Uh, That should be in our hearts all the time rather than seeing them as a means to build us up, see us as a means to build them up. And we should ask ourselves as we're making decisions in these places of leadership, we should always be asking first, how will this affect them? Like, how will this impact them? Not what would this mean for me? Will this mean more work for me? Will this be hard for me? But how is this going to impact the people that I'm leading? How is this going to affect them? That should be foremost in our minds. Right? And we need to resist temptations when we lead to lead publicly one way and privately live another Uh, This text is commending these kings to not just rule nobly out in the public domain, but in the private domain to keep the word of God close to their heart. Uh, In the domains that were unseen, to to live in ways that showed integrity and uh, and honesty and and truthfulness, uh, faithfulness to the Lord God. When we are given positions of authority and leadership, we must stay close to the Lord. Not just practically spin our wheels and be busy all the time and serving and leading the people, but drawing near to God ourselves and being filled up ourselves so that we have something to give to others. Right? And so much more could be said, but I think a text like this should affect our taste for leaders and then our operation as leaders, how we seek to live as leaders in the places that God gives us responsibility. But the second section in this text would be if that was about uh, uh, of leaders priorities or kingly priorities the second section of today's text as we get to chapter 18 is more about what i would call priestly provisions it's this other office that he talks about kings and then he talks about priests 
And this is what I meant, this section, I think could be summarized that those who serve must be cared for. If those who lead are to be servants, then I think this section is saying that those who serve are to be cared for. They're to be cared for in particular ways. Uh, In this text, chapter 18, the start of it, these first eight verses, he's talking about the Levitical priests. That's verse 1, or all the tribe of Levi. You may not know a lot about what that even means. I want to briefly tell you uh, who the Levites were, who these priests were, because I think then it'll make sense of the commands Moses is giving. The Levites were a unique tribe amongst the nation of Israel. Uh, The nation of Israel essentially had 12 tribes uh, that were based loosely, at least, on the 12 sons of Israel. Uh, But God had chosen one of them uh, to be distinct, to be set apart, and it was the Levites. And that's why in verse 1 he says that that tribe of them shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. What he means by that is not that we just don't care about them. We'll just wipe them off. Now we just got 11 tribes left and we can divide it amongst us. He's saying that they aren't going to have an inheritance in the same way as the other tribes. And how that happened in real time is as they went into the land, all the other tribes were given sections of the land. They, they had a map. They, 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 maybe they had a map. At least in their minds they had a map where they're, they're drawing off who get what tribe gets what land. The Levites did not get one of those. Like God gave them certain cities that they could live in throughout the land, but they did not have a portion of land. They didn't have a a big lot of land to live in. And that's why Moses says in these first couple of verses that the Lord is their inheritance. Like they don't, they're not setting, this tribe's not supposed to set their hopes on the land and like inheriting land from their dad and mom and grandma and grandpa who's come before them. God wanted them as a tribe to know that God is our provision. He's going to provide everything we need. And to, the reason he'd set them apart, that tribe of Levi, is because they were the tribe from which the priests would come. Uh, the Levites were the tribe that Aaron was from, Moses' brother, that, that was the first priest, and all the priests who would come after them came from that tribe. They were the ones who would offer sacrifices, who would, who would in a sense, mediate for or go before the Lord on behalf of the people, who would even teach them uh, in the different cities that they were spread out in. They had these responsibilities uh, given to them, to, he says in verse 5, to min- stand and minister in the name of the Lord. That's what the Levites would do. And eventually they do it in a concentrated way in the city of Jerusalem. But they did it even spread out around the land. They would care for their fellow Israelites by teaching them, by interceding for them, by helping them offer sacrifices, helping give them direction. And so they were a unique tribe, but they were, I don't know what adjective to use, they were also a vulnerable tribe. If you could imagine being a Levite, okay? Imagine being a Levite. Every other Israelite, every other tribe, even if they're doing it sinfully, they could set their hope on, like, at least we have our land. Like, at least we have our animals. Like, maybe we've had a hard time, but, but God will help provide for us. They would have more, like, tangible things to set their hope in. Levites had none of that. They had no land to, to set their hope in. They had no animals, typically, to, to set their hope in, at least for a long time. They were utterly dependent upon the other tribes of Israel to provide for them, right? He says that the Lord is their inheritance, but then he says that, they, uh, that, th- that God is going to, look, if you look back at verse 1, he says, they shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. Humanly speaking, where did that come from? 
from the other tribes, right? It's not that God just would like magically, like he did with manna, boom, provide food every day for the Levites. The way that they would have their food, the way that they'd have their sustenance and the things they needed to live was by the generosity of the other tribes. By the people saying, God has given us this. God has entrusted this to us. We know he's not done that with you. But he's commanded us to give from what he has given to us and to give that to you, to be a blessing to you, to help provide what you need for life and for sustenance. And so they were a unique tribe, but they were a vulnerable tribe. Right? They were utterly dependent upon the others, their fellow Israelites. And we, today, if we're thinking of how to apply this forward to today, we do not have priests today, right? And unless there's some ethnic Israelite in the room that I don't know who's from the, the, the tribe of Levi, I don't think there's any of us who are in the line of priests. And even if you were, you still wouldn't be because there's one priest now, Jesus. But that's neither here nor there. That actually is here or there. I'll talk about him in a minute. Uh, but we don't have priests today in the same sense of this, do we? We don't have people who are set apart to minister and then who don't have any home, don't have any land. Like, I'm a pastor, I have a house, right? Like, but we don't have priests who serve in the same way that the Levites would serve, right? And we, we don't have priests today. We do have Christ as our great high priest. But we, these principles, I would say, of the people of God pooling from the resources that God has given to them to be able to bless the people that God has uniquely called to stand and minister on his behalf, that dynamic is a New Testament principle. Like it is applied forward into the new covenant and even into the day and age that we live in. I want to show you one text uh, that shows this. Uh, it's, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. This was written by the Apostle Paul, so this post crucifixion, post-resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. This is this new era. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to Timothy, who is a pastor overseeing some churches. And part of what he said to Timothy was this. In 1 Timothy 5, he said, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then hear this, and he, he quotes Deuteronomy. These verses are coming up in Deuteronomy, actually. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. And so what Paul was saying to Timothy was that in these local churches that he was overseeing, that there would be these men who'd been entrusted with eldership, who'd been entrusted with a unique responsibility to help govern and lead the people of God. And what he is saying to Timothy is that the churches that they oversee, the church that they oversee, that those brothers and sisters should, and I know this seems self-serving, please do not hear me as the one who's the main preacher right now in our church hear this text as self-serving at all. But Paul is commanding that those churches take from the members, take from what God has blessed them with and be able to, in an honoring way, care for the, the elders who are part of their church. To say, man, you brothers, you don't serve out in the marketplace the way that others do. Like you don't have the same calling upon your life to go gain economically for yourself and to, to find security in those things. But we want to take from what the Lord has given to us and we want to not compensate you for the job you're doing, but to free you up from the other burdens of responsibility out in the marketplace that could keep you from doing those things. 
And that's a responsibility that churches have to care for people who are called in unique ways, to not operate in the marketplace, to not seek to to accumulate things for themselves, but who are called to do church planning work, who are called as we send out people to go to the nations with the gospel, as we set aside people to serve in our local congregation. uh, We are called as a church family to take from what the Lord has granted to us in his kindness, the the means that he's given to us as a church, and to, to pull those things together to be a blessing and I I try to talk to our staff often about this and try to remind myself of this that when we when we have funds that are given from the collective church and we give those to our staff we give those to our missionaries we give those to our church planters I would tend to think of it not as much if you can imagine a work week okay this isn't even functionally how we do this but if you imagine a work week like starts ends I would tend to think of us as giving funds to those people at the front of the week to keep them from have, being distracted by the spinning of wheels to try to go gain money. Like it, it's giving them money to do the work of God. Not giving them money at the end of the week as compensation for like some performance that they just did. Right? Like we, we are giving people, we're compensating, not even compensating, we're, we're generous with people to free them up to do the work of God, to, to counsel people, to care for people, to, to do hospital visits. Pastor Rod, I don't know where you're at. Thank you, brother, for how you care for our church. That brother this week has gone to the hospital several times, cared for people. We don't pay him to do that. We compensate him so he doesn't have to have another job that would distract him from that right? Like, and so the people of God who are not called to serve in those unique ways, we pull the funds from what God has given to us to be able to entrust responsibilities and unique roles uh, to those that God has called to those things. And so those who serve in those capacities as missionaries, pastors, church planters, they have a unique role, but they have a vulnerable role. And I want to encourage us as a church to continue to be generous towards the common fund of our church so that we can care for those folks who are serving. It is a God-honoring thing for us to do. We do not want ministers or missionaries, I would say this to clarify, we don't want them to live lives of poverty, but we also don't want them to live lives of extravagance either. And I hope you know both of those things. We're not just seeking to give as little as we can to people uh, just to skate by, but we're also wanting to not give them in the spirit of not acquiring much silver and gold for themselves. We're not wanting to just pad their pockets so that they're content or that we're content to, to trust ourselves and not the provision of God. I want to end just returning back to President's Day, right? President's Day... Uh, was set up to honor George Washington back long ago, uh, 150 years ago or whatever. Sundays, the weekly gathering, President's Day is an annual thing to, to honor presidents past and present. Uh, it, it's set aside for that once a year. Sundays, I, I call the Lord's Day following biblical precedent. Sundays are a weekly thing that God has given us that he's instituted to remember someone who is a far greater king and priest. Uh, Someone who serves every king that this was describing, every priest that this was describing, that Moses is giving these commands for. Those people would come in the nation of Israel, they would serve well or poorly, then they would lay down in the grave. Their their time, even at best, if they were serving well, had a several decades shelf life, right? To serve as king, to serve as priest. Jesus Christ has entered into our world 
And he is an infinitely greater king, infinitely greater priest than anyone described in these texts. That he came and he laid down his life as king. He, he gave up his life as a sacrifice upon the cross for us. And God raised him back up from the dead. And a couple of songs we sang today, and I think the one we're about to sing, talk about how now he has ascended. Like he is on the throne of heaven right now. There is a human king. We do have a human king, not as Americans, but as Christians, right? That, that reigns over all right now, who will never die, who's under no threat, who has no temptation to sin, who rules righteously. And we have a priest who has offered a sacrifice that works. Like we don't have to bring sacrifice of animals to the Lord because a sacrifice has been made that worked, the life of Christ. And Christ, as a resurrected priest, now intercedes for us in heaven. He stands up for us, advocates for us, will someday return for us. So we, every Sunday, on President's Day, we can celebrate presidents. We can honor them for what's honorable. Every Sunday, we get to honor our king and our priest Jesus, who, lay, who is the, the, the leader who served, right? And who is the, the servant who now we honor and who we provide praise and worship to again and again and again, Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. Amen? We have a greater priest, a greater king, and he can help us in our areas of rule. Amen? I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing one more song, and I'm going to leave you with a word of benediction. Thank you for being attentive, but let's pray uh, for the Lord to take what we have heard and apply it to our hearts, and we'll get opportunity to sing. Father in heaven, uh, we are grateful for even a text like this uh, that may feel irrelevant to us, that we may be tempted to bypass because we have no earthly king. We have no earthly priest any longer, but thank you for giving it to us. I, I pray that you may teach us and to operate in our positions of authority and to care for those who are in places of service. Uh, may we, uh, even as we sing now about the king who is infinitely greater and the priest who is infinitely greater, may our hearts be stirred to thankfulness. Uh, may we be stirred to obedience. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.